This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book from Verso that might be of interest is Futures of Black Radicalism, edited by Gay Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin. Black rebellion has returned. Dramatic protests have risen up in scores of cities and campuses. There is renewed engagement with the history of black radical movements and thought. Here, key intellectuals, inspired by the new movements and by the seminal work of the scholar Cedric J. Robinson, recall the powerful tradition of black radicalism while defining new directions for the activists and thinkers it inspires. This book makes clear that new black radical politics is thoroughly internationalist and redraws the links between black resistance and anti-capitalism. Futures of Black Radicalism features the key voices in this new intellectual wave, including Greg Burris, Jordan T. Camp, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and many more. Futures of Black Radicalism, out now from Verso Books. Oh, and I should mention, if you can't already hear it in my voice, that I have a cold so my guests might outshine me even more than they normally do. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The public revelation of Hollywood's open secret that Harvey Weinstein is a sexual predator has reignited a long-running fury over the impunity for sexual harassment and assault in every corner of American life. My guest today is Alex Press, an assistant editor at Jacobin and a PhD student in sociology at Northeastern University. She has written some interesting pieces recently on this issue, and we'll get to that in a moment. But real quick, before we get started... We are in a sprint to make it to our goal of 100 new supporters on Patreon.com by the end of October. If you listen to the show, love the show, take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. Thank you and on to the show. Alex Press, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. This is a particular honor because I know for a fact that you do not listen to podcasts. That's correct, yes. <laughs> Especially not ones I'm on, so it's a <laughs> for me. So you'll never know how this shakes out. Hopefully not. You wrote two pieces on sexual assault and harassment recently, one at Jacobin and one at another socialist website called Fox.com. <laughs> Your argument in these pieces, I think, is that women need to be organized to confront sexual harassment and assault in the workplace, namely, though not entirely, through unions. Can you lay out your argument? Sure. Um, I think that's a good summary of it, and it's definitely not confined to unions. So in the earlier piece, which is in Jacobin, I write about, starting from my own experiences of dealing with workplace sexual harassment, um, talk about how I tried to deal with it on my own and it ended up 
actually multiplying the amount of suffering I was dealing with because I either left jobs or changed my interests intellectually to avoid uh, an abuser in the workplace. And so from that perspective, you know, I think I say in the piece that we have a lot to lose if we try to deal with this on our own. So both pieces share an interest in what do we do now that we're in this moment where publications across the political spectrum are you know, acknowledging the extent of sexual harassment and sexual assault, particularly in the workplace, but really, you know, the conversation goes broader than that. And I lay out in Jacobin a, an argument for unionizing and using union structures to address this, particularly if you if it's confined to one workplace. The Vox piece talks a little broad, more broadly and came right in the wake of the shitty media men list and talks about, okay, Here's one example of what people tried to do collectively. What others are there? And I lay out a couple possibilities, whether it's using union or other professional association structures to track accusations and get a sense of whether there's a serial harasser or a workplace that continues to have um, accusations come up about it. And then from there, the question becomes, well, how do we get rid of abusers in the workplace? And, you know, I start that conversation, but it's not one that um, I can answer on my own. So you suggested in the the Jacobin piece, I think that the social media me, hashtag me Too campaign was was powerful and, and necessary, but also had shortcomings that are reflective of the broader moment that we're living in. Is that so, right? So the Jacobin piece actually was far before the Me Too campaign ah. started. Yes, I've had the unfortunate uh, <laughs> prescience of being someone who was already talking about this but before it became so broad of an issue. Um, but yeah, to speak to the Me Too campaign, you know, I think it's like any social media campaign or a hashtag, you know, I think a lot of us are quick to laugh at that stuff, to think, you know, hashtags are not how we fix a problem that's been one of the biggest problems in our society for hundreds of years, right? But at the same time, I think I'd certainly be lying to myself if, you know, I said that seeing all of these people who are not political type types like ourselves, Dan, you know, my Facebook friends from childhood and stuff, all talking about this with that hashtag and telling stories, you know, that was really that's actually a very powerful thing because a huge part of how this stuff continues to operate in even the most progressive or radical workplaces is this expectation that women will never state that what's going on is unacceptable or is a problem. And it's how people get away with doing it again and again to different women. So, I mean, you know, I think it's important as a socialist to not just immediately go to the well, we need to, women are, you know, suffering because they don't have whatever power as workers or they need to unionize or this or that. You know, women across the class divide suffer from this, just like people of color across class divides suffer from racism, albeit at different, you know, to different extents. So I think, you know, that that was a clear reminder of how widespread this is and the effect it has on all women. Um, And then from there, we can start talking about which women have more avenues to to deal with this and how they can deal with it. Um, so I thought it was a really great thing. 
um, as much as I want to be the cynical cool girl who says, (laughs) oh, this is stupid. Um, But it's it was a powerful thing to see. Wow. Did you not discuss Me Too in either of those? Did I just like intuit an analysis of? You intuited an analysis. (laughs) You know, it sounded, but what you were describing is what I say in the Vox piece about that shitty media men list. Um, Yeah. The not condemning an effort that I find is, you know, imperfect. I think that's a very, you know, it's a good approach for anyone on the left who wants to win people to what our ideas are is, you don't condemn sure. a lot of attempts, right? That's that's the start. Um, and so I've, I've generally thought the same thing about the Me Too thing. Um, you know, social media campaigns only go so far, but often they continue to evolve offline in ways where women see other women talking about this on social media. And then in real life, they start, you know, comparing notes on men or things like that. And they start talking about how to support each other if they're colleagues so, you know, it's it was a good thing to see the public end of that. One thing from your Jacqueline piece, and I'm, I'm sure you did write about this, <laughs> this <laughs> okay. one, um, is when you recounted your own experiences with sexual harassment, the, the upshot wasn't just that it was offensive or, or traumatizing, but that it concretely worsened your professional life, your life as a worker. Yeah. And I think what follows from that is that gender justice on the one hand and worker justice on the other, which are often thought of as siloed issues or even worse um, in, mm-hmm. in in competition with one another, really need to be thought of as, as one and the same. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And if I can hope anything of this you know, collective moment societally that we're having when it comes to sexual harassment, it's that those two issues start being seen as aligned. Um, So as I recount in the Jacobin piece about my own experiences, each one of the little vignettes I tell is an example of how these things are intertwined. So whether it's walking off the job without getting paid, you know, I never came back for my paycheck when I left. I think I was a hostess at a fancy restaurant in Boston. Uh, I left and never got paid for that and had no job after that, Um, up to more professional white collar work, I recount seeking help from a male professor for, you know, advice and a recommendation to get into grad school. And when he responds inappropriately, I don't have his recommendation and I actually don't get into grad school that year. So it's at every, you know, across the sector and industry divides, these things are really central um, for all of us as workers. And I think one thing that has come out since I wrote these pieces that really illustrates exactly what you were saying, Dan, about how these how gender justice and workplace justice go hand in hand um, is has been a really horrifying story that broke this week about um, Scott Courtney and other SEIU higher ups um, within the Fight for 15 campaign have been fired or resigned voluntarily in Scott Courtney's case um, after you know number numerous complaints and I don't know the extent of it. Uh, but there were numerous complaints by subordinates and women about a culture of sexual harassment or worse within that campaign. And, you know, hearing the extent of those stories and that they span from Chicago to Detroit to elsewhere, including, you know, perpetrated by men who were not Courtney, but were likely appointed by him. You know, it's a it's a really 
frustrating, upsetting example of forces that are at the center of trying to, you know, empower and build worker power, taking away from the agency and the and the critical voices that women have. So in a case where there's sexual harassment or sexual assault, an entire culture of it within a campaign or a workplace, what ends up happening is that women who are the most critical voices and men who are the most critical voices within that campaign are likely either moved to different campaigns or they end up quit leaving the the union or whatever, you know, the wherever this is happening. And it actually really harms even our left efforts to build a, a strong working class movement, because those are the voices that were would speak up and have the most kind of new ideas. So you end up with a bunch of men who are all yes men and and, and the campaign suffers. Um, so that was, you know, the the it was a case on the left, I guess you would call any union, you know, by default left leaning but it was it was by a class case. position <laughs> yeah my class position you know we share the project uh but it, you know it, it when it happens there it's particularly frustrating i think because you see how how a lot of us have failed to really make sense of the strategic importance not just the moral importance of taking this stuff seriously i haven't followed the seiu story closely is there a sense of when seiu higher-ups um, were or should have been aware of these complaints? You know, I don't have... There's been a fair amount of coverage at this point of it, and I can't remember off the top of my head. It sounds like, you know, there were formal complaints at least a few years ago. Certainly just informally among people around me, I've now heard that everyone knew about this, you know, for five years, for 10 years. Wow things like that, you know, horrifying things that that sense that that we've seen when whenever any new story has broken since the Harvey Weinstein thing, the response of everyone knew. Right. It was the same thing with this Scott Courtney thing. Everyone knew. And yet. It was allowed to continue until now, which I think is a really frustrating thing to see. That ties in well to another debate that I wanted to ask you about. There was an, another piece on Vox in the last few days on sexism on the socialist left. Yes. And uh, the piece quoted a number of women on the left, including from DSA, and it made it clear that sexism was by no means unique or overrepresented on the left, sort of trying to inoculate itself from being accused of playing into the Bernie bro kind mm-hmm. of anti-left smear. Right. Um, but that the left had a particular responsibility to fight sexism. And the story got a lot of some praise, some pushback. And I think one of the piece of pushback was around the focus on two podcasts, um, Chapo Trap yeah. House and Come Town. What's your take on that piece and the debate over it? My, my view continues to be that if you're going to write about the left um, – you are obligated to write about and interview a whole number of people who are not on Twitter if you know if you really want to talk about the left. So as much as I like, you know, I'm a friend of the author of that piece, Jeff Stein, uh, but to focus on very specific and internet-centric you know, podcasts and then 
use that as a hook to talk about a, a real problem on the left uh, kind of distorts and takes away from the spectrum of people and organizations in the left that are really dealing with this, um, both dealing with it in the sense that there is sexual harassment um, and dealing with it in that lots of us um, have been working on this issue for decades and have important things to say. So, you know, that was when I saw it, I thought, oh, God, yet another article that conflates the left with two podcasts. Um, I think everyone should take a pledge to never write about a podcast if they're writing about the left. Um, so in that sense, you know, it was it was uh, it's almost embarrassing for any of us to have to talk about a podcast when we want to talk about the left. Um, I think that does a disservice. And um, but that said, you know, it's I think, you know, the article itself, like you said, inoculated as much as it could from the idea that this is worse on the left than elsewhere. Um, I mean, it is very much a real issue and a live one, um, as you can see with the Scott Courtney case, um, that progressive spaces and left wing spaces are not immune to sexual harassment or sexual assault. How could they be? Right. Because we're surrounded by a society where that is endemic. Um, and I agree with the case that Jeff makes that, you know, all disagreements with his approach aside, the left does hold itself to a higher standard and it should. Um, yeah. And so while I wish there were a million articles about all parts of the political spectrum and how much they have this problem, it, that I don't have control over that. And it's certainly the case that we do have to take this seriously. I mean, I wouldn't be writing and talking about it um, if I didn't think that was true. I think the I agree with your your criticism of the problem with the piece being the frequent conflation of of, of Chapo with DSA and with the left in 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 general. But I where I disagree with this idea sort of like we can't talk about this in in public or we'll give the kind of Clintonite Democrats ammunition to mm -hmm. to attack us um, because, sure. yeah, that, I, I don't think that works out, shakes out uh, to make for good politics in the long run. Yeah. You know, I think Tim Faust, even in the piece, or maybe he said this to me elsewhere, uh, said, you know, at the end of the day, he's quoted in that piece that he says, you know, at the end of the day, if the left doesn't want a microscope on it, it just has to walk the walk and show that it takes this more seriously than other political, you know, tendencies. Yeah. Um, I think that's a fair thing to say. You know, as much as I don't think having these articles in a place like Vox is the most helpful. Uh, again, we the world as it is is a place where that's what's going on. And so that being said, you know, I think what we can show as the left is that we have we because we understand the roots of why this stuff happens, why sexual harassment is endemic, why it's why it's so many individual kind of efforts or women in higher up positions doesn't seem to be a solution because we understand, you know, how we can fight it. I think that's a strength that we can show that that other, you know, whether it's the center, liberals, the far right, whatever, um, a lot of them may speak to, you know, taking sexual harassment seriously, but they often have really flawed approaches to how to fix it. Um, so I think that's, you know, a piece that hasn't been written, um, which is that the left, why is the left holding ourselves to a higher standard? And how do we approach um, what are successful cases where we've actually addressed this? Um, 
and I think that's something we have to offer to, say, liberalism, um, particularly liberal feminists. And it's something I've been trying to do is, is you know, use this moment as a way to talk about how do we really address this in a way that that has a longstanding um, effect for women. Until the current debate really blew up, the dominant liberal argument around women in the workplace, I think, was this lean lean in um, about leaning in. Um, what do you make of the lean in argument in the context of the current debate? And relatedly, how do you see neoliberalism and patriarchy combining to impact women at work? Well, I think this moment certainly shows the the myriad failures of a lean in feminism approach. Um, you know, there are plenty of these cases where women were at the top of the organizations or the companies where this, where sexual harassment was endemic, whether we're talking about SEIU again, which is led by Mary Kay Henry, a woman, um, notably one of the few union presidents in the U.S. who's a woman, um, and yet that didn't seem to stop the the union's star campaign from be- having these problems. You know, it's the same thing in Hollywood. Some of the women that have come forward you know, are hugely powerful, successful celebrities. And yet that hasn't seemed to, that doesn't really do much. Um, Hollywood certainly speaks to a progressivism that fits really well with Sheryl Sandberg's lean in feminism. And yet it seems like for women who aren't at the top, they, you know, it's been disgusting to see it put that they just sort of saw this as what they were required to do until they could get there. Um, And if that's, that's not a feminism I want to be a part of. Um, one that tells you to hold your nose and submit to horrible things until you maybe win the lottery and get to the top. Um, and so I think in a really strong way, this has shown that even the, you know, even the best, most, you know, well-meaning women at the top um, either have no idea about what's going on because they're not the workers at the center of it, um, or at worst, they're actively complicit in that. So, um, you know, I think neoliberalism, a term that everyone hates, but this this individualized focus on how do I personally get ahead um, often reproduces a the illusion that women can escape this stuff um, when this month has shown that, you know, almost no women can escape it, even the ones that we would assume could have. Um, so I think that's a really useful corrective to that, to that discourse in general. Yeah, and, and with the the just reality of the American labor market, which requires huge numbers of people with the current setup to be employed at incredibly low wages, and the way that, and the way that that exploitative, highly unequal labor market is is gendered, the sort of put up with this stuff till you get to the top um, is is really an unworkable and offensive strategy for for women working at the minimum wage. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that unsurprisingly, but unfortunately, nonetheless, something that's been missing from a lot of the conversation is that the women we're hearing from are the ones who have sort of gotten out, you know, they've gotten out on top of this and now have the power to speak up about, you know, things they experienced when they were younger, say, or whatnot. But, you know, in writing the piece for Jacobin, I was looking at the statistics of 
a recent survey by, I think it was the restaurant, it was an organization, like a proto-union that represents restaurant and fast food workers. And they'd done a survey of fast food workers about, you know, who, who had experienced sexual harassment or sexual assault on the job. And it was horrifying numbers, you know, something like 75% of women and of that 75%, you know, something like one in six had ever done anything about it. Um, and the reasons they gave were that they, you know, if they either feared or had seen other people be retaliated against for speaking up. And of the one in six who did do something, you know, the majority of them said that they were retaliated against um, by their manager for, you know, for being a problem of uh, being a troublemaker in the workplace, whether they were fired or demoted, got less money, missed a, you know, wage theft is rampant at the minimum wage, especially in fast food. And so there's very real structures in place that keep the majority of women from being able to do much on their own. Um, and it, it really speaks to, to the, to the weird, weird gap that continues to persist in this. Right. And, and I say in the Vox piece that, you know, as I'm a woman who works in media and we are a particularly, you know, I might not make great money. Many of us in media make crappy money. Um, it's a really precarious thing, that industry. And yet we do have some level of social power um, mm -hmm. that allows us to really leverage issues like this that we care about and, and speak in a way that can, can have effects for the broader society, right? If we're the ones writing the news, then we're the ones that can say this is a real issue. Um, and that we have to collectively create structures to deal with it. But that said, it would be really remiss to not mention how disconnected that social power that I have is from the majority average experience, which is much closer to a person who's working minimum wage. And if they're brave enough to speak up, ends up getting fired for being unwilling to put up with sexual harassment. And that firing probably won't make the news. Not that the Hollywood right. scandal shouldn't have made the news. So it's not like, right. you know, by no means am I saying this shouldn't be a scandal, but it's also important for us to say what else isn't a scandal that should be. I yes, think. exactly. And I think that's something that a lot of us who work in left media should be really trying to do is talk about, you know, how do we leverage a moment where, you know, we all hate that celebrities are the ones who get heard and no one else does. But having, you know, admitted that that's the case, how do we broaden issues that they're speaking to to say this, you know, this happens to everyone and and lots of people don't get to write op eds about them. So so let's talk about what we can do, in, you know, to strengthen these structures so that they're this isn't put up with in any workplace. Lastly, before I let you go, we've alluded to it a few times, but haven't addressed it directly. And you wrote about it in your Vox piece, which is the shitty media men list, which was a <laughs> Google yeah. spreadsheet circulated amongst women in the media, identifying allegedly predatory men. Um, you wrote that it was reflective of of good sentiment, um, but had major problems. Just briefly, what was what was the list and what, what's your take on it? Sure. So the, the I think well-named shitty media men list uh, was an effort by women in media in the U.S. Um, to formalize something called the Whisper Network. You know, people started using that phrase I think a lot in the wake of the Weinstein um, 
allegations. And it was, you know, I write in the Vox piece, the Whisper Network is something that, say, I'm I'm new to New York and new to media. And so women would either tell me over drinks or they would message me on Twitter and they would say, don't be alone with this guy in media or this guy has assaulted my friends. Things that were meant to basically as an act of solidarity with a woman who myself who wouldn't have known this stuff was new to this world. Um, and it was a very, you know, it was a feminist thing. Um, it is a political act to to share that information with other women. And so the the media men list was an attempt to sort of centralize that information so that women who maybe didn't know any other women in media could eventually get access to that um, and keep themselves safe. Unfortunately, or fortunately, who knows, uh, but it spread incredibly quickly within eight hours. It was, you know, had been, there were hundreds and hundreds of people looking at it. And so it was shut down, but it broke in the news the next day when so, uh, a woman at BuzzFeed decided to write about it um, and has become very much a subject of, of heated debate within media um, about whether, you know, both the strengths of the of a collective action like that, of trying to share with other women information about dangerous men that work in their industry, but also about the flaws in that, you know, it was completely anonymous. Anyone could edit it who had access to the document. So even though it said women only, you know, who knows who could have accessed it. Um, and I say in the Vox piece, I think of all the sort of, we could talk about this list forever, but the important point here is that most of these allegations on that list are probably true just by based on every statistic we know about false allegations and about how many men probably never didn't make it onto that list. And so that being said, it's very important that going forward, we make sure that whatever structures we put in place to what, whether it's to aggregate allegations or to, to act on them, that we have a verification process in place that ensures that every allegation is not tarred by this concern about a, you know it being false or not true in some way. Um, because again, almost all of them are gonna be true, I think. So it's very important that we can, we can act with confidence on that information and, and act on information that we receive about men. But you know, the upside of that list that has come in recent days is that it seems like actually some of the men on there are either being fired or are under investigation now at their workplaces, which is a good step um, to take to have an internal investigation if a man's name appeared on that list. Uh, Alex Press, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Alex Press is an assistant editor at Jacobin and a PhD student in sociology at Northeastern University. Follow her on Twitter at Alex N. Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine, as Marx once coolly informed Bakunin, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. And 
please do tell your friends about the show, either in person, on social media, or in whatever manner you prefer. All propaganda on our behalf is most greatly appreciated. And last, but by no means least, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Whatever you can contribute is a huge help. Thank you.